passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Now, I want to um, I want to take a few moments to frame our time in this book of the Bible uh, in in Second Timothy um, with a with a quote that many of you are probably familiar with. It's a it's a quote from former President Ronald Reagan. He he once said, "Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction." And of course, he he says that in the context of encouraging each and every generation to not take for granted the the liberties that are available to us today. And while that's true in a geopolitical sense and in regards to to nations, I think it's an even more appropriate thing to to say when we're talking about the future of the church, when we're talking about the future of Christianity. The church is never more than one generation away from extinction. And if we're not consciously thinking about ways that we can be investing in others in in the church of tomorrow and doing that today, then there's not going to be a church of tomorrow. Plain and simple. You see, in the Bible, we, we see that this is called discipleship. It's these relationships that take place between mature believers and less mature believers, where mature believers take people alongside them and say, I want to show you how to live through my example and through my instruction. It's very applicable. It's taking the, the truths of the gospel and applying them to our everyday lives. Discipleship has to be a a part of the lifeblood of the church because if discipleship is not a part uh, of the church's lifeblood, there is no future for the church. And if there is a future for the church without discipleship, it's simply just a a watered-down form uh, where we, we lose sight of the gospel and we lose sight of this thing that transforms hearts and lives. Now, many of us, we could point to examples of denominations that 50, 60, 100 years ago that were the hallmark of Christian faithfulness, and yet today, they're a shell of what they once were. We can think of local churches like the church that I grew up in that was just more of a testament to a a bygone era with with a dim future ahead. And 2 Timothy is a book that is concerned with faithfulness in the church, not just today, but also tomorrow. And in a very real way, this is a book that's about the passing of the baton. It is written about four and a half decades after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. And in this time, the church has grown from about 500 people that could gather together in Jerusalem to now being tens of thousands of people that are spread across the known world, across the Middle East, across North Africa, across Europe, and even beyond that. And that growth all takes place during the first generation of the church. Under the leadership of those who walked with Jesus, the apostles, those who heard from Jesus themselves, and now that time is coming to an end. Many of those who walked with Jesus have died either by natural means or because of martyrdom. And if there is any hope for the church to flourish, it has to be passed on. If there's any hope for the church to be ready for the return of Jesus, however long that takes, then the next generation has to take up and share the gospel with those who are around them. As we turn our attention to this book over the next 
few months, I want us to just consider what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us as individuals, but also as a local church. How does this book transform the way that we do ministry, the way that we look at ministry, the way we look at investing in those who are around us? And as we jump into this book, I want us to just take a a bit of time this morning, first introduce ourselves to this book, and then to consider Paul's prayer. And this is all going to be found in the first five verses of 2 Timothy. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up. Uh, we're going we're gonna to pray first, so let's, uh, let's pause and pray. Father, it is our utmost prayer this morning that you would make us faithful, that we would be stewards of the legacy of the church, and for that, we thank you for the book of 2 Timothy. We ask that you would prepare our hearts as we pick up this book for the next few months, that you would help us to see clearly how you want us as a church to respond God, we ask that you would bless this time in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so first we're going to familiarize ourselves with this book, with Paul and with Timothy. Uh, Just these two people, Paul writing this book to Timothy. Even if you don't know anything about the relationship between Paul and Timothy, before picking up this book, it becomes very clear as we open this book that these two are very dear friends that they have a great relationship. Paul's affection for Timothy is on display in verse 4 when he, he says, I long to see you. And Timothy's love and affection for Paul is, is also found in verse 4 because when, when they, they last parted, Timothy, he, he broke down into tears, which Paul references in verse 4. Paul's partnership with Timothy in the gospel started about 15 years before this letter was written. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's traveling through modern-day Turkey, and he goes to this church that he has planted a few years earlier on his first missionary journey. As he arrives in this area of modern-day Turkey, we see the encounter is described in Acts chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra, A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So here is Paul, and he's traveling through this area of churches that he has planted a couple years prior to this, and he meets Timothy. And Timothy is young at this point. Scholars debate his age, probably around uh, his mid-late teens in in Acts chapter 16. And he, he encounters Timothy, and the church can tell that God has big plans for Timothy, and Paul agrees after getting to know him. And so he says, I want you to come with me, and I want, I want you to, to come under my wing, and we're going to travel all throughout Europe and all throughout Asia Minor, and we're going to plant churches together. And for the next 15 or so years, that's what Timothy does with Paul. For 15 years, they, they partner together. Timothy is one of Paul's most faithful companions. He travels with Paul. He plants churches with Paul. He serves as Paul's representative to churches that Paul wants to go visit, but he can't because he has other obligations. He even co-authors some of the letters that we have in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Philemon, all of these, if you look at the first verse, are written also by, not just by Paul, but also by Timothy. They partner together to see the gospel spread throughout Europe. And then we get to 2 Timothy. 
And they've been traveling together for a long time. They, they know each other really well. They, they partner together, as I mentioned, for 15 years. 2 Timothy is written about 64 A.D. Paul and Timothy first met around 50 A.D. And this young teenager of Acts chapter 16 is now a, a man in his, his mid to late 30s. And he's, he's now a, a missionary of his own, and he's traveling to all of these churches where Paul has asked him to go and to share the gospel and to strengthen the church. And as Paul writes 2 Timothy, Timothy, he's a, we believe that he's serving in Ephesus. And Ephesus is this church in, in modern-day Turkey that was a strategic church. It was the largest, uh, it was the largest city in that area, and it was strategic because from that church, Many other churches were, were planted throughout modern-day Turkey. And this is where Timothy is serving as Paul is writing 2 Timothy. Of course, Paul is not in Ephesus. When Paul writes his first letter to Timothy, what we have is 1 Timothy. He, he's doing it on the road. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 tells us that he wants to come and visit Timothy. But now Paul is imprisoned. Scholars believe that Paul uh, is imprisoned twice in his life, at least twice, uh, in, in Rome. We have the imprisonment that we see at the end of Acts chapter 28, and then he is released from prison, and then he is arrested again at a later time, and then is eventually put to death. Paul, throughout his life, he doesn't just invest into Timothy, he also invests into another, uh, a number of other young men that he hopes will lead the next generation of the church uh, and yet, as we see in 2 Timothy, all of them have abandoned him. Paul is left all alone in prison with the exception of one, and that's Luke. Luke, who wrote Luke and, and, and the book of Acts, is the only person who is with Paul as he is in prison. And can you just imagine the temptation that Paul is facing, this temptation for discouragement? Here we have this man who has dedicated his life, the last 30-some years of his life, to the gospel, to see it go forth and, and spread. He's traveled tens of thousands of miles, many times on foot, in order to bring the gospel to places that do not have it yet. He has received beatings, he's been arrested multiple times, and yet he looks at all of it and he says that it was worth it so that I might reach people with Jesus. And yet here he is, as a part of his, his mission, he finds himself in prison, he's raised up other people to do the exact same thing when he's gone, and yet they're gone. He's left virtually alone. What's more, the prospect for Paul's future is looking pretty bleak. This isn't what we see earlier during the, his first imprisonment described at the end of Acts. Paul is confident that he will be released Philippians is a book that he wrote during that first imprisonment. He writes this, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul looks at his, his imprisonment and he says, I, I don't think there are any charges that are going to stick. I'll be free soon and I'll come visit you again in Philippi. Now a few, ver a few years later, he says this isn't the case anymore. He can see the writing on the wall. His death is coming. For the sake of the gospel... He will die. Second Timothy chapter 4, he says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. 
So here is Paul, and he's awaiting death. He's been abandoned by the majority of the people that he invested in, that he poured his life into. His closest friend, his, his closest companion is thousands of miles away, and he writes 2 Timothy. This letter, a very personal one, it's this plea to Timothy to come and visit him one final time before it's too late, before Paul is gone forever. And he writes this letter just in case Timothy doesn't make it to Rome before Paul is killed. He wants to make sure that Timothy has the resources, knows what he needs to face a future without Paul. 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter before his death for the gospel at the end of his life. He takes a pen, he sits down, and he concludes that these are the things that are the most important things for me to pass on. This is the most pressing stuff that I, I don't have a lot of time. I'm going to communicate these things to you, Timothy, so that the church can continue to flourish after I am gone. I mentioned earlier it'd be really easy for Paul to be disappointed, to be overwhelmed by the abandonment of his disciples, his friends. It'd be really easy for Paul to be discouraged as he finds himself sitting in this Roman jail awaiting execution. But does he become discouraged? Well, if we look at the text, I don't think he does. At least not for long, if he does. He's writing at the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 1 in his introduction. He writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the, mercy, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even here at the beginning of his letter, this formal introduction, Paul is revealing a little bit of his theology, a little bit of his perspective on his circumstances. His allegiance to Jesus is what has landed him in prison. It's the charge that will eventually end his life. But does he grow bitter? No, not at all. He doesn't wonder why God has allowed him to suffer these things as the reward for all of his labors. Paul introduces himself as an apostle. This is a way that Paul uses to, to refer to all of the work that he has done for the church. And he says, more importantly, that this is done by the will of God. Here's a man who, who remains confident in the lordship of Christ, even in his suffering. And this belief is the rock upon which the church can rest when it is facing persecution, when it is facing suffering. Paul's confidence in God's authority echoes the words of the first apostles. Decades earlier, when they first suffer for the name of Jesus in Acts chapter 4, rather than questioning whether God is in charge, they run to that truth and see it as something that is worth rejoicing in. Acts chapter 4 says this, When they were released from prison... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Isn't this Paul's heart while he is in prison here? Not, not that his suffering would end but instead that he would have the courage to remain faithful to the gospel. 
How is it that Paul is able to make this declaration about the goodness of God in his suffering? Well, the answer is given to us in the next phrase as he's introducing himself in verse 1. This is a very unique phrase from the Apostle Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's normal. He always introduces himself that way. Then notice what he says next. According to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. How is it that Paul is able to persevere? Well, it's because he has the right perspective. Here's a man, he's facing death and he knows the Lord of life. And he chooses to focus on that. Here is a man who, who his life is about to be taken from him and he says, you know what, that's only temporary because the promise of life eternal that I have in Christ Jesus can never be taken from me. What an incredible gift it is to rest in the promises of Jesus. To rest in the gift of knowing beyond any doubt that God keeps his promises and that even when facing death, Christ Jesus has given an unshakable promise to those who are found in him, the promise of life in Christ Jesus. That's the foundation upon which Paul writes all that is about to be, uh, he, he about, he's about to write in 2 Timothy. No matter what may come, the Lord Jesus will rescue him the Lord Jesus will make him new. Let's take a look at verses 3 through 5 as Paul is praying his prayer of thanksgiving for Timothy, starting in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. As was often the case in the first century, letters were, uh, would be started with a, a word of thanksgiving. And that's exactly what Paul does here. He, he mentions things that he has to be thankful for. And he's thanking God explicitly for Timothy, right? Now, verses 3 through 5 in the original languages, they're all just one sentence. And so all of this is trying to say one thing with some supporting statements. What is the one thing that Paul is thankful for when it comes to Timothy? It's a genuine faith. Everything else that he writes in these verses is supporting that declaration. Thank God for Timothy's genuine faith. Verse 3, Paul gives us a picture of his habit of prayer. He, he uses this description of, of remembering Timothy constantly in his prayers night and day. It's a convicting one. He isn't saying that all he does is just hide in a prayer closet for every waking hour. But he does say that he lives his entire life in the presence of God. His life is a life of prayer. And not just a life of prayer, but a life of prayer for others. For people like Timothy, throughout the day, throughout the night, every day, every night, Paul continually interrupts his day with prayer. I'm, I'm reminded of the words, alleged words of, of Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in the late 1800s. He was supposed to say, I never go more than five minutes without, uh, I never pray longer than five minutes, but I never go longer than five minutes without prayer. Now, Paul almost certainly prayed longer than five minutes at a time. But that mindset of an entire life dedicated to the Lord Jesus, lived in his sight, praying is what we see here from the Apostle Paul. But that's not all he says in verse 3. Notice what else he, he mentions in this verse. It is his prayer of, of thanksgiving 
is this prayer that, that thank you God for Timothy's genuine faith, but also notice that he mentions his own genuine faith. Now, he doesn't come out and say it that way, but he talks about his own faith. He says that he serves God, which is what has landed him in prison, and that he does so in the very same vein as his ancestors. Paul is making this claim that his gospel, what what he proclaims, is the real heritage of the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Contrary to the claims of the Jews of that day, many of who said that the Christianity is just a, a heresy, Paul is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Paul's faith is the exact same faith, the, the natural progression of the faith of, of godly men in the Old Testament, like Ezra and Josiah and Isaiah and David and Moses, all the way back to Abraham himself. What's more, Paul also says, not just that he talks about the spiritual heritage that he has, he also talks about his clear conscience. This, again, makes a lot of sense when you look at his context, as Paul is sitting in prison. Here's a man who's, who's facing death for his actions. And it would be really easy for him to say, well, maybe I shouldn't have done things the way I did. But Paul looks at his life, he looks at his circumstances, he says, I don't regret a single thing. My conscience is clear before God. That's a, that's a really profound statement. Paul isn't saying that he never sinned. Paul is instead saying that the trajectory of his life is one of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. When he sins, he repents. When the Spirit leads him, he follows. When God calls him to speak up, He speaks up. His life is lived before the presence of God, and that means he will do whatever it takes in any and every moment to honor Jesus in that moment. A clear conscience is a gift from God, isn't it? This gift of a clear conscience, it's found at the intersection of the gospel or the reality of what Jesus has done for us, the work of Jesus on the cross, washing us clean. And between our obedience to the gospel, as we follow the leading of the Spirit, it's not as a means to earn God's favor, but because we delight to serve Him. And so if you struggle with your conscience, if you feel like, well, I, I, I'm racked with guilt over, over this thing or, or that thing, or I don't even know why, if you don't have a clear conscience, it's probably because of one of those two things. It's either because you don't really truly believe in the work of Jesus on your behalf, that you've been washed clean because of what Christ has done for you, or it means that you're not being obedient to the gospel. You're not being obedient to what God is calling you to do in the Spirit. And Paul looks at his life, and he looks at these two components. He looks at what Jesus has done for him, and he looks at his obedience to the gospel, and he says, you know what, I have been faithful to everything that God has called me to, I can now, at the end of my life, say I have a clear conscience. Verse 4, he interjects us into this prayer of thanksgiving. He describes his heart desire. Here is Paul. He, he says that he's, as he's praying for Timothy, his, his mind runs back. And this is, this is actually good news because it, apparently his mind wanders while he's praying just like it does for me and for others today. His mind goes back to the time where they first departed. And he says, Timothy, I, I remember your tears at that moment. And when I think of those tears, man, my heart goes out to you. I just, 
I just want to see you. I want to be with you again. And it gets to verse 5, and verse 5 gives us the heart, the heart of his thanksgiving for Timothy. Why is this prayer of thanksgiving here for Timothy, why is it one of thanksgiving? Well, as I already mentioned, it's because of Timothy's faith, and that that faith is genuine. Verse 5, I want to read it again. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So here is Paul, and, and as he turns his mind to Timothy, he thinks of all of the times, and there would have been a lot of them over those 15 years. Thinks of all of the times where Timothy's faith has been proven genuine by the fruit of his life. I think the word genuine here is, is a little bit more appropriate uh, than the word sincere, which is what our translation has, because I think that that captures the heart of what Paul is saying here. Today, the word sincere can, can really just refer to our, our heart's intentions. I can be completely sincere and yet dead wrong. That's not what Paul is saying about Timothy here. That's not the, the faith of Timothy. Paul is saying that when he thinks of Timothy and he thinks of, of Timothy's faith, he thinks of faithfulness. That Timothy's life is a testament to the truth of the gospel. That his life proves that his faith is genuine. Undoubtedly, Paul is writing this to encourage Timothy. One wonders if Timothy is, is having doubts He's struggling with his feelings of inadequacy, especially as he sees the writing on the wall uh, of what's going to happen to Paul. And he, he starts to compare himself to Paul. Timothy knows Paul has, has been arrested. He's facing trial. And, and as he thinks more and more of Paul and, and life without Paul, he begins to become discouraged because how can I possibly live up to that? And Paul writes to Timothy and says, your faith is genuine. Where does he say that he learned that faith? It's from his mom. I love this line about Lois and Eunice here. Because it reminds us, and it's a reminder to Timothy, that his own faith is the legacy of his mom and his grandma that Timothy has a spiritual heritage as well. Lois and Eunice likely came to faith when Paul planted a church in Derby three years before they first met during that first missionary journey. And after they came to faith in the gospel, those two women did all that they could to raise Timothy in that same faith. And Paul thanks God for that genuine faith. And by extension, the genuine faith of Lois and Eunice that's expressed in the fruit of Timothy's life and his conversion, that Timothy, in a very real way, is their legacy. Do you notice the parallels here between Paul and Timothy? As Paul is, is introducing this, he, he isn't stating them outright, but he's, he's drawing a number of parallels as he is stepping back, as he is preparing for the end, where he no longer will be a part of the church. He's drawing parallels between himself and Timothy. He's, he's wanting Timothy to see something. Just notice a few of these parallels. First, notice the, the mutual affection between the two of them, right? 
Timothy loves God's leader, and God's leader loves God's future leader. Timothy is in tears the last time that they parted, verse 4. When Paul is writing to him, he calls him his beloved child, verse 2. He says that one of his greatest desires, greatest prayers, is that Timothy would come and see him, verse 3 and verse 4. Another parallel is Paul's faith and Timothy's faith. Both have a genuine faith. He talks about, Paul talks about his service to God in verse 3. He, call, he talks about his calling in verse 1. He says that he serves God with a clear conscience in verse 3. Paul's life is one of faithful service to Jesus. He believes Jesus and his life bears that out with the fruit of his life. And Paul also stresses and emphasizes that that's true of Timothy as well in verse 5. Regardless of whether or not he is writing to address feelings of inadequacy or not, he wants Timothy to know, hey, Timothy, your faith is genuine. I've been around you long enough that I know you well enough. I'm an expert on Timothy, and I know that the fruit of your life is an expression of a genuine faith that you believe in and you trust in Jesus and you do whatever is necessary to follow him. And so there's a parallel here between first, their affections, and, and second, their, law, uh, their, their faith, and then there's also this parallel between their spiritual heritage. This is probably the only reason why Paul mentions his ancestors here. He's talking about his conversion and how it is the legacy of those who have gone before him. Faithful men, faithful women who have gone before him. And he says, you know what, Timothy, that is the exact same thing for you. If you're familiar with the conversion of the Apostle Paul, you know it is a spectacular one. Acts chapter 9 talks about it. It is uh, intervention of God. He, he hears God speaking in a way that, that many of us, when we look back at our conversion, if not all of us can say, well, that's not exactly what my conversion was like. Timothy's conversion is remarkably different. We don't know the specifics, but we do know that he comes to faith at his mother's knee. And Paul is drawing a parallel between the, the spiritual heritage of Paul on one hand and Timothy on another. And he says, you know what? We have the exact same heritage. We both owe our conversion, our faith to those who have gone before us. He's drawing a parallel between the two of them, saying that not only do we have the same faith, we also have the same legacy. God has been at work in generations past, and we are the fruit of that. And what he says here is setting up what he's about to talk about in the rest of the letter, in the, last, in the four chapters of this letter, in a very real sense. That's the thrust of this text. These parallels here. I want us to just briefly consider this text through the lens of Paul and then through the lens of of Timothy. So here is Paul. He knows that the, that the most important thing that he can do in the time that remains 
is to prepare the church of the next generation. He's concerned with the future of the church here. He knows that his time is short. He's going to do all that he can in the limited time that is left to make sure that Timothy and others like him are fully equipped to carry the banner of faith for another generation until it is their responsibility to hand it off to the next. That's what Paul is doing here. Paul feels this very real responsibility for tomorrow's church today. And so that's why he writes. And, and even though he is imprisoned, even though he's thousands of miles from Timothy, he knows that his, his work isn't yet completed. Might that be the same of you? Might that be the same for you? To take a long look in the mirror and to ask yourself, in what way am I contributing to the flourishing of tomorrow's church today? To look at our, our lives through the lens of Paul here. In what ways am I discipling, both through instruction and example, the next generation? Do I have the same priority, the same urgency that the Apostle Paul does in these verses? Who am I investing in? And if no one comes to mind, who might God be calling me to invest in? Look at it through the lens of Timothy as well. Here's Timothy, and he's receiving this letter from the man who has served as a father figure to him for the last decade and a half. Here's a man who has, has shown him what it is like to follow Jesus in the good and in the bad. A man who has taught him through his example the sufficiency of Jesus in lack and in plenty. Not just in word, but in his actions as well. And he receives this letter, this last letter from his friend. And he reads these words, I thank God for your genuine faith. I thank God that your faith is on display in the fruit of your life. And would that not serve as an encouragement? But not only an encouragement, a challenge, maybe even a, a, a warning as, as the time without Paul draws ever closer, as he reads these parallels that Paul is making between Paul and, and, and himself, and he's reading, you know what, my time is coming to an end. It's your turn now. Do you not think that this is not just an encouragement, but a challenge and a warning? Might the same thing be true? of you as well. When you think of spiritual maturity, who comes to mind? Who comes to mind when you think of the, the charge to look at the example, to follow the instruction of those who have gone before you? Might, might you pray, Father, help me to be faithful like those who have gone before me. Help me to be exceedingly faithful. Help my faith to be increasingly genuine. Help me to learn while I still have time from those who go before me. That's this morning's text. That's really 2 Timothy as a whole in a way. It's concerned with how we can see tomorrow's church flourish today. What is our responsibility to see tomorrow's church flourish today. That's the exhortation I just want to leave with each and every one of us. Sow the seeds of tomorrow's church today. Sow the seeds of tomorrow's church today. You have a role 
you have a part to play. If we're going to see a, a church with a genuine faith tomorrow, we have to pass it down today. Sow the seeds of a genuine faith for tomorrow's church. And do that today. As we close, I just want us to consider this in two areas that are the fruit of this text. In the home and in the church. It's no accident that God intended for these two women, Lois and Eunice, to be mentioned here. God made sure that they were mentioned here as a reminder to each and every one of us, but especially the mothers of our church. I often wonder what it was like for, for Timothy's mom, Eunice, when he was growing up. What, Acts chapter 16 tells us that, that Timothy, his father was Greek, doesn't tell us anything more than that. We don't know if she was a single mom who was left to fend for herself. We don't know if her husband was, was still around but was an unbeliever. Based off of the cultural context, I, I mean, if I had to choose, I'd say it's probably the second that he was still around but an unbeliever. We do know that the Old Testament prohibits the marriage of Jews with unconverted Gentiles. And so it seems that what starts here is a relationship between this Jewish woman Eunice and this Gentile, and it would have been something that everyone else looked down upon. Did she get married to a pagan in a fit of rebellion against the, the faith of her, her youth? Did her mom, Lois, did, did Lois's heart break when Eunice married Timothy's father? We know that she became a, a Christian eventually. At what point? Did she return to the faith of her youth? Just imagine the whirlwind of emotion she went to when she came to faith in Jesus while her husband wanted nothing to do with it. Imagine the challenge of earnestly believing in the gospel, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus and wanting everything in her power to see her beloved son Timothy come to that exact same life-changing reality that is the gospel and yet her husband continues to go to the pagan temple. Were there fights in their home on how to raise Timothy? Did Timothy, like so many little boys, just want to be like his dad and began to, to follow him and go to, down the path of paganism? How many sleepless nights do you think that Eunice spent praying for her son? Just imagine the joy that she experienced when Timothy gave his life to the Lord Jesus and he was forever changed. Just to imagine the, the joy and the sorrow that she felt when Paul shows up in town and she sends Timothy off with him, this, this young teenager, and says, go and serve the Lord Jesus with Paul. Timothy's legacy of faith is his mom. And his grandma. Mothers, never underestimate the influence that you can have on the kingdom of God through discipling your children. Church history is, is filled with countless examples of godly men and women who have been used by God in mighty ways throughout church history who say that the key to their faith was their mom when they were little. 
God intended for these two women to be mentioned here to be an encouragement. Especially an encouragement for those who feel like they have little to no help from the, the father of their kids and pointing their kids to know Jesus. And as we're talking about dads, dads by no means are excluded. Just because Timothy's dad was absent doesn't mean that we are abdicated of all responsibility for the legacy of faith for our children. Don't grow weary in doing good, but continue to sow the seeds of tomorrow's church today. This text talks about that in the home, but it also talks about it in the church as well. Paul, he's, he's writing to another future leader of the church in, in the book of Titus. In Titus chapter 2, he says this, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Old, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Likewise, urge the young men to be self-controlled. So here is Paul. And this is his, his strategy, his vision of how the faith is passed down from generation to generation. It's older women in the church teaching younger women in the church how to live out the gospel in day-to-day -day life. The word training here, very powerful one because this is very practical. It's hands-on. It's life-on-life. -life. How does your faith integrate into your daily life? And the same thing is true for, for men as well. Older men are to be self-controlled, and, and what are the younger men supposed to be? Well, self-controlled as well. How? The exact same way, one of training, raising up the future church. What are, what are you doing to invest in the future church? Might God be calling you to pour into those who are around you, to show others how the gospel transforms life. Will you sow the seeds of tomorrow's church today? As I consider um, the Bible, I think the most, one of the, I'll just say the most sobering story in the Bible is the story of Hezekiah. You're probably familiar with Hezekiah if you've been in the church. Hezekiah king of Judah during the time where the northern kingdom of Israel um, was conquered by the Assyrians. And when the Bible describes Hezekiah, it has this to say of him. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So we have this picture of Hezekiah. This man of astounding faith in a, impossible situations, and God is honoring that faith in his life. But then we get to the end of Hezekiah's life, and, and 2 Chronicles chapter 32 tells us that his heart becomes proud. In 2 Kings, it tells us the story of how uh, some, some envoys from, from Babylon, they, they show up, and, and when they arrive in Jerusalem, Hezekiah shows them the entirety of his kingdom's wealth. And then after they leave, the prophet Isaiah approaches Hezekiah and says, hey, what did you show him? And he says, well, I showed them everything. And then Isaiah prophecies about the coming destruction that will take place at the hands of Babylon. But then he says, but that's not going to happen during your reign. It will happen to your children, to your sons. How does Hezekiah respond? He says this, 
or it says this, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. In other words, here's Hezekiah. This powerful picture of faith for the vast majority of his life. And then he gets near the end of his life and he says, well, that's their problem, not mine. When you first read it, you, you like have to do a double take because you're, you're, you're so surprised. It's so out of character for Hezekiah. It's an incredibly terrible thing to say that this life of obedience and, and faith, it ends not with faithfulness, but faithlessness. Not in passing on and encouraging the next generation, but saying, you know what, they can deal with it on their own. May we never be Hezekiah. Unconcerned with the faith of the next generation. May we never abdicate our responsibility for the faithfulness of the next generation. As a people, we have two paths before us. We can choose the path of Hezekiah or we can choose the path of Paul. Let us be a people who sow the seeds of tomorrow's church today. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would give us wisdom on how to respond to this text. Through your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to know the right way of how to respond. God, we ask that you would help us to never only be concerned with ourselves, only be concerned with the church today, but to instead be thinking of how we can raise up and disciple and pour into those who come tomorrow. Help us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.